Hello and welcome to episode 3 of the Bubble Boys. This is Devin Olsom joined by LP covering everything inside and outside the NBA bubble. So we're sitting here on a Wednesday night on September 2nd. Right now we got the Heat and Bucks game 2 going on. Miami's currently up by 10 with 7 minutes left. But uh, also in bigger news, we had another softball. A couple more softball games <laughs> last night. Yeah, that's bigger news than heat box game too i mean i can't think of any other bigger news that's gone on this past week than our softball games can you uh no because 2-0 again this week that's a four game winning streak we had a bye last week we had a buy in softball also took a week off of the podcast just with all the social issues going around and the nba taking their stance so we felt like it wouldn't be right to a record an episode so that's why we were gone last week but we're back this week and feeling pretty good off those couple wins last night I kind of forgot how much I tend to complain. I like to think of myself as kind of a big dog, you know, somebody who likes to hit dingers. And I kind of realized that I'm not much of a team player. Uh, <laughs> we had two guys go yard last night, and I did not high-five or clap or anything. And then all I did was hit it to the third baseman the whole night. Granted, I got on six out of eight times, but I don't think I've ever heard anybody complain more about batting 750 than me, and that's just hearing myself talk. Yeah, you, yeah, I mean, hey, whatever you can do to help the team, if it's not a high five, if you're getting getting on base, scoring runs, that's all that matters in I, the end. I like to think of myself of Jordan Clarkson of softball. Oh, I'm not right. really there for the team. I'm there to kind of be a little showy, Maybe get laid after the game. That's kind of what I'm there for. <laughs> so, you know, after... So last night was Game 7 of the Nuggets and the Jazz. Oh. And someone after the game, after our softball game, there was like four minutes left in the game. We turned it on quick. Someone said, huh, maybe you should have brought uh, Jordan Clarkson in. Or maybe this was after someone else said it to me. But I was like... You bring in Jordan Clarkson for that last shot. Jordan Clarkson is taking that last shot. And that's what you're going to have to live with. I was just like... Not the move I would have made. I mean, only, and it was me probably complaining about it because I'm, any single time that Royce O'Neal is getting any minutes, I'm dying on the inside. I literally watched him catch a ball with 15 seconds left playing professional basketball, dribble once toward half court to make himself in more of a trap position, and then pick up the ball and wondering what to do next. I, like I said, not, not going to give Jordan Clarkson too much credit, but he can do a little better than that. Yeah, I agree to disagree on that one. But anyway, uh, hats off to you on that prediction because I think you went Nuggets in seven. I had Jazz. I had Jazz in seven. I was feeling very good about my winner at least up until game six. I still thought after game five they'd be okay. But I mean, Jamal Murray and Donovan Mitchell couldn't have been much of a better series to watch. I don't know why you didn't see it coming. I totally foresaw the Nuggets <laughs> going down three-one. And then having three Jamal Murray games where he's shooting like 60% from three. I totally pictured that working. And not to mention with all the high scoring games, the rock fight that was game seven was super strange to watch. The, the Nuggets ended up winning with like 31 points total in the second half. Yeah. I mean, kind of playing off of that with Donovan Mitchell and Jamal Murray, what are your like outtakes or lookout for them next year? Like, do you think... Donovan Mitchell especially, like the entire bubble has just been on like another level. There's been rumors coming out today, max contract, pretty obvious decision for Utah, but what are your lookout for them next year? Well, his biggest problem is that he's been a very inefficient right. scorer for his whole career. It's never been about his ability. He's, he's kind of making this late transition. They talk about him being a baseball player for a long time. 
and he's just kind of figuring out the games. The most promising part for me was that he was kind of making those next-level passes that you hadn't seen him do before. He's always been very explosive in the pick-and-roll. He does a great job creating space for his own shot, but he wasn't doing a ton of creating for others. And in the bubble, I really thought that he did a nice job finding not necessarily the easy pass, but he was skipping the people in the corner for wide-open shots. The aforementioned Jordan Clarkson, your George Niang, your Royce O'Neal, they were getting wide-open looks this series. And granted, Denver's pretty trash at defense, but I will give Donovan Mitchell a lot of credit for what he was doing. So I think that's definitely translatable. And for Jamal Murray, it's just seeing him finally having a good shooting stroke and it going in. Like, I don't know what else to say. He's always been supposed to be a great shooter, but it just never clicked for him. And he was working really well off those high pick and rolls this series. So him, I'm a little more skeptical about going for, but the Donovan Mitchell, I think he has arrived as like a nice superstar for this league. Yeah, I agree 100% on Donovan Mitchell. Again, with Jamal Murray, I think it's just the inconsistency factor is he'll have games. Like, and I mean, this was obviously his most important, most successful run in the playoffs of his career, probably his biggest moment in his basketball career. But then again, even after the last... <laughs> Sorry, I, I, I was sipping some whiskey and it went down the wrong way. I just heard you start choking over there. I was like, hey, we're choked, good to go. I get choked up thinking about Jamal Murray. <laughs> Jamal Murray. That's right. Hey, you're not the only person that gets choked up thinking about Jamal Murray. Uh, anyway, we should probably get back on track. But anyway, um, with Donovan Mitchell... Is that talking about Donovan Mitchell or Jamal Murray? Jamal Murray. Oh, yeah, Jamal Murray, the inconsistency factor. So with his inconsistency factor, I just think he has too many times over his career where he'll have, you know, three games with 30 points in a row, and then he'll disappear for a couple nights and go for 12. And I guess that's kind of the way the NBA is with a lot of, like, volume scores is you'll have on nights and you'll have off nights. But I think it's been a big factor over the course of his career, and I've heard a lot of from Denver fans in general or just the media of, like, the front office just wanting him to get consistent Morgan system they just paid him that big money contract so I mean him and Jokic are the future in Denver and I mean if they can't figure it out together there's not much uh, they're going to be stuck with those two for a while and the reason I'm a little more skeptical on Murray was actually that this series was like a schematic perfect fit for him in that Gobert was on the floor at all times and he really took advantage of Gobert all that Denver was doing with Murray was running a high pick and roll trying to force a switch and instead of doing a pure switch or a hedge, the Jazz are actually dropping, dropping. their big man. Yeah. So Jamal Murray is coming off any single time he wants. If he's feeling good, which he was for those three nights, he was getting wide open top of the key three-point looks any time that he wanted him. And they actually got to the point where the Jazz switched Gobert off of Jokic so that they could have a more aggressive defender. And what you saw in Game 7 is more of what I assume teams will do with Murray going forward, which is... They're going to they're gonna knee him in the thigh 15 times if he wants to do that. They're going to hedge hard. And Murray's critique has always been, his, we don't know how great his handle is. I mean, he played off ball in college. He kind of got thrust into this point guard position. He's another player who doesn't really create for others. And I just don't know if he's going to be explosive enough and creative enough to continue to have this type of scoring output. So in this series, he had the perfect matchup for himself to go off like this but I think what you'll see even in the next series against the Clippers is they're gonna close that off real quick they're gonna force Murray to go to the hoop yeah and going back to Donovan Mitchell for a second before we move on to the Raptors and Celtics I just think the biggest thing kind of like you touched on was the efficiency factor 
like so much in his career he's settling for step back mid-range jump shots or wild three-pointers but I think in the bubble like you said a little bit he's been attacking the rim getting to his spots finding the open shooters on the outside and I mean he's not going to shoot over 50 percent from three all the time obviously like he did against the Jazz but I think I mean he's one of the highest players that I'm on just off of bubble performance alone like I mean, everyone talked about tj warren or mm-hmm. obviously luca was really impressive impressive but i think donovan mitchell's series in general was just really telling but otherwise let's move on to the raptors and celtics so as we sit here tonight on a wednesday the celtics just came off another win last night putting them up 2-0 in the series i know you've been pretty high on the raptors on this podcast uh, me not so much so at the beginning of the series i had celtics in seven I'm guessing you had Raptors with how high you've been on them. I did. I had Raptors in seven, and it has been. It hurt my soul to watch that last game where Marcus Smart decided to space jam Reggie Miller and go off for 16 points in five minutes. I honestly, defensively, I don't really fault the Raptors for what they've done. They've really tried to take the ball out of Kemba Walker and Jason Tatum's hands. There's been a lot of. Jalen Brown threes, a lot of stopping dribble penetration and kicking to the semi-Ogelets of the world. And when I was predicting this series, that's kind of what I was banking on, is that those Gordon Hayward minutes are going to semi-Ogelet and Grant Williams, and those are not nearly as effective of players. And so instead of having Gordon Hayward at the end of those ball reversals, you're getting below 30% three-point shooters. But what I didn't expect was the Kemba Walker explosion. Going into the series, he was absolutely the key for me because what good teams do to Kemba and why people were nervous about Kemba going into this series in the playoffs in general is A, a little bit of injury, but mostly it was the fact that you can kind of play him off the floor. If you can take advantage and force the Celtics into switch scenarios and get Kemba in the post, you should be able to take advantage of him. But Pascal Siakam does not look at all comfortable on those switches. They're headhunting Kemba. They're getting Pascal on Kemba, but Pascal's catching 12 to 15 feet away from the hoop. And he's a a growing player, but those aren't the touches. He's not good enough yet to take touches from 12 to 15 feet and turn those into great opportunities. I haven't seen Pascal yet, and I'm being a little hyperbolic. He hasn't just gone through Kemba to finish strong at the rim. He's using his length as opposed to using his power And I'm sure Nick Nurse has to be getting on him. I don't know if he's worried about foul trouble, but flipping shots from even on the move from three to six feet with your fingers is not nearly as effective as trying to make a nice power move, end with a jump hook, end with a dunk, the type of shots you should be getting with a matchup like Kemba Walker. Yeah, and I think my biggest takeaway for the first couple games, too, is, I mean, maybe it's a bit of an anomaly, or however you say that. Yeah, that word. Yeah, yeah, that word. But uh, Pascal, I mean, Pascal Siakam doesn't look like himself. 13 points in game one, 17 in game two. Both nights he was 5 of 16 shooting and 6 of 16 from the field. I mean, that's not the Pascal that the Raptors and Toronto fans are used to, but it's kind of been the Pascal of the entire bubble. I mean, he was only averaging 16.9 points per game throughout the seeding games. And I actually went back and just looked through this morning at all of his uh, field goals in the first two games and kind of like you said I mean he's had some all right looks from like three that he's just flat out missing that he'll usually knock down but then as you said he's forced some shots where he could be getting to his spot more in my opinion but over the course of the playoffs he's shooting 25 percent from three and you touched on the Kemba Walker thing a little bit 
Pascal's actually having the most success when Jalen Brown has been guarding him this series. I think I saw Jalen Brown as the primary defender on Pascal. He's 7 of 12 from the field. But then you get a guy like Marcus Smart on him, and he's 1 of 6 from the field shooting against him. Semi Ojale, he's 1 of 5 when, when Ojale is guarding him. And it's just, it's kind of the same thing that we'll talk about, or that I'll talk about with the Heat and Bucks is the Celtics just have so many wings and, I mean, defenders to throw at people. Like, if you're thinking of Marcus Smart, Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, Semi Ojale, I mean, the list goes on and on. Daniel Tice is a capable defender mm-hmm, in, like, mm-hmm. switching and drop coverage type scenarios. But I just think, I guess the amount of different coverages the Celtics can play and the amount of different looks also plays a factor on what's been going on with Pascal. And I think what you'll see is that is happening to Pascal is that they're going to force him off the ball more. I do not think that Nick Nurse is going to be running his offense through Pascal for the rest of the series. I honestly am kind of excited to see what Nick Nurse does. He's a little bit of a mad scientist, and I actually have a prediction. I'm picturing grit and grind, man. I think they're going back to the Gasol, Ibaka, put Pascal at the four type lineups, use those high lows, be physical with those guys because the problem for Philly wasn't the inside play. I mean, you had Joel Embiid, who is a better inside player than Gasol and Ibaka, but I think what Embiid showed is there is a serious weakness down there. The Celtics can be taken advantage of in the inside post, and I think what you're going to see is a lot more looks of Marcus on the block, Serge Ibaka on the block, and Pascal on the block, as opposed to catching in these 15 to 20 feet ranges where they try to kind of catch and hit a mid-range jumper or try to do a dribble handoff for Van Vliet and for Lowry. I think you're going to see a lot more post-ups because, give Boston their credit, the Raptors look uncomfortable. For the series, I believe that the first game one, they shot 10 of 40 from three, and then 11 of 40 from three in the second game. That's not normal, but it makes sense when you watch the games because players are uncomfortable. Kyle Lowry is a pretty decent three-point shooter, but he's not a guy you expect to pump fake a guy take a dribble in, step back, and then hit the three. He needs to be set, and spotting up OG Ananobi needs to be set, and, and Pascal needs to be set. Fred Van Vliet's the only one to show any ability on this team to maybe move off the dribble and hit threes, but his game has been all over the place. So now, if you're Nick Nurse, you have to pivot to almost an entirely inside game where you need to get as many easy looks as possible and work from the inside out. I would really look to see if Marcus Saul becomes more of a feature. He has had a horrible series from behind the arc, and defensively he's been pretty average, which is surprising. But I think they're going to have to feature those bigs a lot more to get back in this series. Yeah, and just hearing you say that, I guess the game plan change could be the way they go. But, I mean, I think Toronto's in trouble. And this has kind of been my entire thing about them in the the entire way. Like, yeah, I took Celtics in seven. I expected the Raptors to show up a little more than they have, and I still think they will. But when I look at them, and and Siakam hasn't been going, and you're like, you have to flip this game plan, and who are you going to in the fourth quarter when you need a basket, and their transition offense isn't going anymore? Because Pascal, Kyle Lowry, uh, Fred Van Vliet, Serge, they're all great in transition, getting the ball going and running. But now the Celtics have started cutting down on those opportunities, and Fred Van Vliet's been nowhere to found, kind of like Pascal Siakam. And I'm just sitting here saying, like, what can they do? Like, sure, maybe they can go to a grit and grind with Gasol and Ibaka on the post. But if I'm the Celtics, I'm not scared of Marc Gasol and Serge Ibaka on the post. Like, yeah, Joel Embiid tore me up. That's Joel Embiid. Marc Gasol and Serge Ibaka are not on his level or anywhere near it, in my opinion. 
Marc Gasol might have been able to do that a couple years ago, but in my opinion, Marc Gasol is now more of a pop-type player, and I mean, he hasn't been hitting those shots, which is, I think, why you've seen more Serge Ibaka in this series. And actually, Ibaka had a pretty solid game. He had 17 points and 9 rebounds in Game 2, even though he was a minus 10 on the court. And But, I mean, going back to it again, just with who Toronto's going to go with in the fourth quarter when they need a bucket, you know, the Celtics are on a 10-0 run. Who do you give the ball to and say, here, go get me a basket? Isolation offense. I mean, as much as I don't like it and as much as a lot of teams and fans don't like it, like it's the case sometimes where you just have to stop running sets and you have to say, here, go get me a basket. I mean, you see it with guys like like on the Heat right now, Jimmy Butler. You can give him the ball. He'll get to a spot in the mid-range and get you a basket. And to your point, Kyle Lowry and Fred VanVleet have been those guys, and they want nothing to do with the Boston in the post. They have been getting into the paint. They've actually been beating their primary defender, but Boston's done such a fantastic job of corralling those guys and forcing them into eight-foot floaters as opposed to getting all the way to the rim. The length is really bothering those guys. Yeah, I think Daniel Tice has been really great in that aspect of the series. I mean, I looked it up on the matchups on uh, NBA Stats, and Fred Van Vliet right now, when Tice switches out onto him, and this could be off of screen or, you know, he's dropping down in coverage and Fred Van Vliet's taking a jump shot or whatever, but Fred Van Vliet's 0-5 when Tice switches onto him. Like, when you have that speed that should be a quickness advantage i mean fred van vliet's a point guard daniel tice is a center you need oh, to get really? a bucket yeah <laughs> and oh five is not gonna do the trick and i mean even when kemba's on fred van vliet he's five of 14 and i mean i'll just keep hammering this point over and over again toronto in the fourth quarter in game two scored 21 points siakam was zero of three shooting in that quarter van vliet was one of seven lowry was one of three i just think i just think the celtics have too much to throw at them and this is why it bothered me so much when I started seeing things on Twitter. And I mean, Twitter's maybe not the most accurate representation of yeah, everything. You shouldn't be getting bothered by Twitter at this point. But it's but some things still are... I'm hearing Toronto's a better team without Kawhi Leonard. I'm like, come on. Like, this is where Kawhi Leonard would... I mean, he would take a game over. You have, I think, what, what did they go into the fourth quarter with? Like a seven-point lead or something in game two? Right. Like, and then Marcus... I mean, Marcus Smart's not going to go... Steph Curry mode on Toronto every single game this series, but I just don't think Toronto has enough quite yet until Pascal can maybe develop further into an isolation type score where it's like, here, here's the ball, go score, go put it in the basket. The only glimmer of hope that I think Toronto has is they can speed up the pace of play they should be the deeper team in theory with the Hayward injury, but Boston does have some nice pieces. And last but not least, Boston's turnover rate has been a lot higher in this series than it generally has been during the regular season. And the Raptors have kind of kept themselves in games that way. If they can keep taking advantage of those turnovers and they can maybe speed up the pace of play and try to avoid those half-court scenarios where they might do the grit and grind, that's the only hope I have. Otherwise, the Celtics look powerful right now yeah Celtics look good and just one more quick thing you mentioned Toronto's shooting from three-point land in game one and two but just to hammer it home further Boston had seven more threes in game one and also in game two they had four more threes and just that difference isn't going to be enough to overcome for Toronto and looking further into it the Raptors and Celtics are actually the two lowest the two teams that allowed the lowest three-point percentage for uh during the regular season to opposing teams and I think it just just goes to show how uncomfortable Toronto is right now because Boston's still able to get those looks. 
and their wings, I mean, their wings look awesome. Jalen Brown, when Jalen Brown got signed to that massive deal, I, I mean, I was one of the first to say, whoa, what, you know, what the heck is this? What has he done to deserve that kind of money? And, and he shut me up pretty quick. <laughs> But uh, anyway, let's move on to Miami and Milwaukee. So right now they're in game two. There's a minute 45 left. Miami's up by... Is Giannis going to make this free throw? Yes, Miami is up by eight with a minute 45 left. So I think we... Uh, I don't know, maybe knock on wood, but I think Miami's about to pull this to a 2-0. And I know you're pretty big on... You're pretty... We, I guess we've both been pretty high on Miami throughout. I still thought Milwaukee at the beginning of the series, I said Bucks in seven. I still thought, I mean, Giannis didn't think Miami would be able to get it done, but quite the surprise, maybe not to some. How about you? I did have Miami in seven, so I like to say that I giveth and I taketh away, Dev. Yes. I get the Nuggets series right, pat on the back for me, nobody really cares. The Raptors thing is going sideways, but I really did trust this Heat offense against this Milwaukee defense. It, it's not super simple, but... The type of looks that Miami are getting in this series are just quality looks. They're getting open three-point shots. They're getting a lot of dribble penetration against this Milwaukee front, which was actually the big question because Milwaukee's point-of-attack defense has always been very strong. You have Eric Bledsoe right there, who usually does a nice job of stopping dribble penetration. But Goran Dragic's been getting anywhere he wants. Jimmy Butler's been getting anywhere he wants. And... The big question was going to be, can they stop Giannis? And when I started this, I really thought it was going to be, all right, we're going to have the Giannis and Bam showdown. That's the only body type that makes any sense to go against Giannis. But they've just been throwing an army of people at him. They've thrown Crowder at him. I just saw Derek Jones Jr. guarding him. Jimmy, Iggy. Jimmy, Iggy. They have a lot of bodies that I've been impressed with that they can throw at Giannis. And all they're trying to do is stop that transition drive and to stop that catch from 16 feet. It's not similar to Siakam, but Giannis has had a lot of trouble in this series catching from the elbow or catching from a little deeper even and then trying to get all the way to the hoop like he does. During the season, people aren't throwing two or three bodies at him in the paint. And right now, he seems very bothered by the fact that Miami is more than willing to have Bam sit underneath the hoop if he's guarding Lopez and have all these big bodies kind of knock him around. They're going to let him shoot free throws. They're not going to let him just get a bunch of dunks and get himself going. They're trying to force Giannis to be a perimeter player. Yeah, and they're going off to the shooting free throws aspect. I mean, you're right. I mean, if he gets into the paint, they're hitting him. They're hitting him hard. It's almost not to the extent of the Jordan rules back in the day, but, I mean, if Giannis gets into the paint, like here, we just saw in this play, Giannis is driving in, bam, smacks him hard on the body. He's going to the free throw line. Game one, four, he was 4 of 12 from the free throw line. The Bucks overall in Game 1 were 14 of 26 on free throws. Miami took one more free throw than the Bucks, and they made 11 more. I mean, and they won by 11. Like, there's your game right there. Right. You can't make your free throws. Just like that. Air ball almost just ticks the front of the rim. I mean, it's just not going to work for Giannis. And I, when I kind of previewed this series or dug into it a little bit, I mean, kind of like you, I think Eric Spolstra is the type of coach that he will try anything, and if it doesn't work one game, he'll. if he has to do a complete 180, he's more than willing to do it. I mean, he's one of the best coaches in the game. I I did anticipate maybe more Bam Adebayo on Giannis, but I think it's a good idea to give him all these different looks. They're just walling up. Anytime Giannis steps inside that free throw line area, they're just walling up, throwing two bodies at him, making him, almost turning him into more of like a playmaker. 
And I mean, he looked uncomfortable game one. He was, I went back and looked at all six of his turnovers and there was times he would run into the wall and just kind of lose the ball because he didn't, I mean, he didn't look like he wa- he knew where he wanted to go with it when he needed to get to that point. He didn't, he had guys out on the three-point line open for a jump shot, but he didn't know like he looked, that didn't make sense. He didn't look like he know, knew how to make the pass out of a double team. And I mean, that maybe that's part of his game that's still developing. Maybe that's part of his game that, you know, we've seen and he I've necessarily, maybe I just haven't caught onto it. But I think it was definitely evident in game one when he was met with that kind of pressure that he doesn't see in the regular season that he, I guess, panicked. Is that the is that the right word for it? Well, it's it's panic, but it's also that there's nobody else to go to. My biggest critique yeah. of this Milwaukee team all year is that can you really depend on Eric Bledsoe? Can you really depend on Chris Middleton to show up and just take over parts of the game? Giannis can't do everything. There's a reason that these giant duos or big threes are constantly winning in these series is because LeBron, as great as he is, you don't want to put him at a 100% usage rate. You need other players to make plays. And with the Bucks, what they have, I don't trust the talent that they have. As opposed to Miami, I do trust Jimmy Butler. I do trust Tyler Hero, as confident as he is to go make plays. I do trust Goran Dragic. So for Giannis, these role players are letting him down. It's happening too often where they're relying on these big, slow veterans Giannis, game one, I kind of want to scrap that. I don't think that's the true Giannis where he struggled. But what's happening is that they're getting into late-game shot clock scenarios, and Giannis gets into trouble, like you say, and he's kicking it to who? Brooke Lopez at the three-point line? And he's making shots that are outside of his range. There's too many times that I've watched this series where there's a big moment where the Bucks are within three or they're down two, and the person that's taking shots are Brooke Lopez, Kyle Korver, and Pat Connaughton. I, I don't know where Chris Middleton and Eric Bledsoe. Bledsoe's had a nice game, too, but his shooting stroke has been a constant issue for this offense. When it comes playoff time, people are going to pack the paint and force him to shoot. And if Giannis can't get more shooters on the floor, at least more creative ball handlers to start creating in space, the Bucks are going to be in real trouble to win these games. Yeah, and I think that's been everyone's issue the entire time with Giannis's career in Milwaukee is what has Milwaukee done, excuse me, to put the necessary talent around him. And I think they want so bad for Chris Middleton to be that guy. Like in the first half of game one, Chris Middleton was that guy. He had 21 points in the first half. Second half, seven points on three of 10 shooting from the field. It's just, I keep going back to it over and over again every time I look and watch the Bucks play. But I think Giannis needs, like you said, a second true star that can take over portions of the game. And Giannis, I looked at some of the stats. Giannis's usage rate in the fourth quarter is up this year to 38%. Like, yeah, he's the star player on that team. That's got to be that high with the current roster. But it shouldn't be that high. No. Like, nobody's usage rate should be 38%. I don't care how good you are. And especially for a guy... That's not a great three-point shooter or mid-range shooter. Or a primary ball handler. Exactly. And, I mean, that just goes to show, I mean, I don't want to harp on Chris Middleton and Eric Bledsoe, but it's like they're not the number two, number three guys on a Giannis-led team. He needs needs another primary handler around him that can create his own shot and even, I mean, create shots for others too. And the the hardest part for this is that Giannis – as great as he is, he's not a player that does well off the ball. 
he doesn't have a ton of activity for as great as he is off the ball. When you're watching the Lakers, you know, Anthony Davis isn't touching the ball every single time, but he's making cuts, he's spacing the floor well. He's he's a useful player off the ball. And the problem is I think that the way that the Bucks are playing is that they need Giannis to actually not be an on-the-ball player. Again, similar to Siakam, I think that if you're going to make adjustments, and I know we kind of rip Budenholzer for not being able to make adjustments, but if Giannis is catching within 8 feet of the basket as opposed to 12 feet of the basket, how much better is Giannis from there? You can't bring those double teams. You can't crowd the paint. you got to start setting some off-ball screens for Giannis and force switches in the matchups that you want if you want to be able to get back in this series. And that's my last bit on the Bucks. I just want to give a little bit of praise to the Heat in this series. They have done a very excellent job. Jimmy Butler has shown himself to be a number one player on a team. He is taking the big shots. He's being physical. He's making great plays on defense. But my man crush for Bam Adebayo can't be higher, man. <laughs> he is part of the Leighton Spalding inside the paint club, which means anytime it's inside the paint, he's not throwing up a layup. He's dunking it. And I love that about a player who's willing to be that physical and that strong in the paint. Through these playoffs, he has been unbelievable. His plus-minus is an average of four points a game, which doesn't seem like a lot, but that for a lot of games, that's what makes the difference. Is he's a constantly a positive player. In game one of the series, he was a plus-10. And the surprising part is that he's actually been better for their offense than their defense. In terms of offensive rating for 100 possessions, he accounts for 24 points more when he's on the court. That is a ton and what it is is his offensive rebounding ability he is going through players and he's being wildly efficient on these shots there's a lot of three-pointers being thrown by this team but he's collecting a ton of rebounds and what he's doing is he's creating a vacuum for a player like him where he doesn't have to get eight post touches a game to be effective he's being effective by just tipping balls out grabbing boards letting the ball reverse and then when he catches it in an advantageous spot, he's willing to not, he's able to knock down a shot at a high rate. Yeah, and going back quickly before I also touch on the Heat, with Giannis, so a player of his skill set, so not a great three-point shooter, not a great, I guess, I mean, he's a fine isolation scorer because he can take guys off the dribble and go dunk on them, but like he's not a, I'm going to get to the you know top of the key and knock down a jump shot. So with a guy like that, or like Siakam, who's on a lesser degree, similar to Giannis in the way they play, mm -hmm. has there ever been a guy on a team that you can think of, you know, where he's, he's the guy and they win a title like that? So, like, not a guy like Kevin Durant, who can, I mean, you know, one of the best pure scorers in NBA history. Right. But is there a guy, like, just thinking about it, can Giannis win... Yes, Giannis can be first in the Eastern Conference, have the best record in the NBA all regular season. But when it comes down to playoff basketball, at the end of games, sometimes, as much as people want to say the mid-range is dying, Kawhi Leonard, Jimmy Butler, guys like that, they do damage in the mid-range in playoff games. In tight games, going down the stretch, they'll get to their spots. I mean, I just think over and over again in the Dallas series, Kawhi got to that little spot in the paint and he does his little turnaround from five feet away and knocks it down every single time. To your point, Kawhi shot 79% <laughs> from that range, between 10 to 16 feet. He was absolutely lethal from there. 
right? And so maybe that's a maybe that's a range that Giannis could work on a little bit more instead of so if he get if he runs into that wall, can he develop a little? I mean, pull up jump shot or some kind of turnaround at a high level rate that I mean maybe takes that disadvantage away from him. But is there a guy in that skill set that you see as yes, this guy can be a number one without a clear-cut star as a number two. Because we can see it, once again, we saw it last year with Kawhi Leonard. He was a clear-cut one. I mean, Pascal Siakam, Kyle Lowry, they're good players, but I wouldn't have considered last year them as clear-cut stars. Like, I don't think there was a, you know, big three or big duo in Toronto last year. Or Jimmy Butler this year. Like, Bam Adebayo is a good player. I don't think that's like a big, you'd consider like a big three or a big duo with Bam Adebayo. Like, he's a clear-cut number one that's leading his team. Can Giannis or a player of his type do that? At this point, no. Uh, the pieces that they have around him don't necessarily fit, but Milwaukee and specifically Giannis are just dying for a late shot clock creator type player. You know, we haven't brought up Kyrie Irving on this podcast yet, but that type of player who can just go get a bucket. Putting that on Giannis's shoulders, he's already the defensive player of the year. He's likely a high candidate for the MVP already. And just to ask him to do everything on offense, too, doesn't seem to be very fair. I mean, it's just Ooh. just a ton of pressure on him right now. Ooh, the state Maybe game. we spoke a little too soon. I know. Chris right? Middleton fouled on a three, bucks down three with four seconds left. We'll see what happens. But, I mean, I think that's where, I mean, maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves. I still think that the Bucks can come back and win this in seven, even if they, that's not a good foul call, but... Even if they end up going on to lose this game, I still think the Bucks can come back and get it together. But if they lose this series, they're in uh, they're in trouble. Like they're Giannis is gonna think about getting the heck out of there, going to somewhere like Dallas, Miami. You know, they all have that Luca primary ball creator mm-hmm. type, like also like Jimmy Butler. But I mean I just think they're the Bucks are in a tough spot. Giannis is in a tough spot with how much he's doing. Nah, I don't know. They're in trouble. Uh, going on to the next series just quickly. So, uh, ooh, tie game. 4.3 left. Well, we're about to see if Jimmy Butler is going to get to his spot shot. and go get his bucket. With the live podcast, we just spent about 15 minutes dumping on the Bucks. We, we still did. might find a way to win this game. Ah, that's all right. You live and you learn. But uh, going on quickly, we just wanted to touch on the Clippers-Nuggets series that will be coming up. Quick predictions. Who do you got? I'm going to go Clippers in five. Maybe the Nuggets can steal one. I was really tempted to put the Clippers in four. I just don't think the Nuggets have what it takes defensively to slow the Clippers down. The only things that will give the Nuggets a little bit of hope is that the Clippers' low-post defense has been pretty atrocious to this point. Boban was having way too much (laughs) effective play for my liking. He was like, it's 16 minutes a game, and he was up double digits in three games in his plus-minus. Like, Jokic is a much better player than Bolban, and so if you can take advantage of a Harrell being on the floor or you try to extend those Zubac minutes, you might be able to catch him on a night, but the Clippers are overwhelming. We talked about Kawhi's greatness at this point. Michael Porter Jr. is not going to know what to do with Kawhi Leonard, and at this point, all the Clippers really need to work on is see if their bench depth can get a little rolling. They've had kind of a struggle with Harrell. Lou Williams has been fine, but Shamit's been a bit of a mess. Marcus Morris hasn't been the great offensive player. Reggie Jackson's been struggling for a long time. 
basically Jamichael Green and Lou Williams have been the only bright spots, and it's nice that they can be this deep, but if they can get that bench going, then the Clippers can actually be a real threat for a title, in my opinion. Yeah, and kind of like you, I don't see any way Denver wins this series. I mean, oop, three seconds left, one second. Jimmy, step back. No, overtime. Headed to overtime, but anyway, going back to the Nuggets and Clippers, I got Clippers in five as well. Oh, they called the foul. No, they didn't. They call the foul. Wow. Wow. I, I guess we'll have to see if the foul was before time expired. And the last foul on Tyler Hero, I believe, was a complete uh, garbage call. Yeah, on Dragic. And on this Dragic. one was on West. Oh, was on Giannis Giannis him at the end? Wow. Yeah, that's a pretty weak call, too. If they I lose the game on this, I don't I, feel good about this at all. Maybe we can talk about it a little bit, but I don't like bugging on the refs at all. It's not the thing, but in these playoffs, it's it's just been atrocious in my opinion. Like, I think it was last night, Jason Tatum, I think he got called for an offensive foul, and he you know pumped his fist in you know, disagreement or whatever, and the ref teed him up. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. Like, you, these guys are competing their asses off out there the porzingis technical that one too that one i mean it's just the competition level in the playoffs is so high guys are going to get heated guys are going to get into it separate them and move on like the nba has just gotten to the point where you see the refs too much in the game and it's never good in my opinion when you're seeing or talking about the refs after a game and you can tell too like all these players the bubble has really affected everybody involved and I don't know if the lack of fans is starting to empower some refs to take over games or what, but like you said, some of these fouls being called, if this was a, if this game, this foul right here, Giannis kind of bumps Jimmy at the end of regulation. If they're playing in Milwaukee, do you think there's any percent chance that this foul is getting called? Right. No, there's no chance. And I guess maybe you could argue that it means that they're getting more things correct, but... I totally agree. I don't want to see the refs in this game. Their job is to keep the game flow going. And in games like Houston OKC, I almost feel like the, their absence has been a problem. Like The games are so choppy in that series that it's almost borderline unwatchable. So I, I tend to agree. We, we don't want to make the refs a bigger part of the game. I don't want to rip on them too much. But if they're going to literally decide this game like it looks like they're about to do, that's a travesty for the NBA. Yeah, and... Yeah, I mean, they just confirmed the call. So Jimmy Butler is about to get two free throws. He's got to knock down one to win the game. So, I mean, that's almost a guarantee. Even as a person who's cheering for Miami to win in seven, yeah, I want to see more basketball. This has been a great right. game. The Bucks made a great comeback. Miami is a learning team, and this is a travesty to watch it end like this. Yeah, it is. And uh, going back to the Clippers and Nuggets, now that we've talked enough about hating on the refs a little bit, I just think... The Nuggets, I mean, Jamal Murray, I mean, Jokic played well throughout too, but Jamal Jamal Murray won them that series. I mean, he caught fire going in, I think it was game four, he started catching fire. Four, five, and six were his crazy games. But when I look at the Clippers, they're going to they're gonna stifle Jamal Murray. They don't have a guy like Gobert who will drop coverage that hard and Jamal Murray's going to get off easy looks like he did from three. When you got a guy like Harrell, I mean, maybe he's... Not the best post defender on Jokic, but when we're looking at like pick and pops or screen and rolls, like he can switch out onto Jamal Murray and get up in his face. He doesn't have to drop like Gobert and worry about getting beat off the dribble to the rim. And I guess I don't know, I haven't checked on Pat Bev's status for the series, but he's another guy. You throw him on Jamal Murray, he'll 
pester him and do whatever. I mean, if it comes to it, you can throw Kawhi Leonard or Paul George on him. But <laughs> you hope that I it doesn't come to that. I don't think it'll come to that. But then again, I didn't think it would come to that in the Dallas series either. But I think Clips in five, not much to worry about for that one. Final update, Miami wins with two free throws from Jimmy Butler. Miami goes up 2-0. LP's feeling good. Going to take in a little sip of bourbon and celebration and then move on. <laughs> Here we go. It moves right over to the Houston OKC game. You want to touch on this at all? It'll be kind of awkward. This game will be, right now it's in the first quarter. By the time you guys are listening to this, it'll be over. But you're hoping for, so I said Rockets in seven initially, and so that's I. looking pretty good. Oh, no, never mind. I said Rockets in five. Rockets in five, yeah. Whoops. But, I mean, that's, I think everyone wants to see, well, maybe not everyone wants to see Houston win. I think people like shitting on uh, James Harden and Russell Westbrook a little bit but it's kind of a lose-lose series for fans cuz you got Chris Paul's general dickery and then you got James Harden and Russell Russell Westbrook's kind of lackadaisical weird vibe it might I really want to see the Rockets as well but what have they been doing the past couple of games yeah. like they're they are they always have like a 10 point lead in every game and every single time OKC comes back in the clutch you know that's what the Thunder are going to do. In the fourth quarter, the Thunder have been the number one team in the NBA in terms of efficiency for scoring. You know it's coming. So why is Russell Westbrook taking over the game with three minutes to go? Why is the ball not in James Harden's hands? Yeah. All the unforced turnovers by Russell Westbrook. And even, I think we texted about it a little bit at the time. It was game five, Houston. You know, they came back from the little mini hiatus that went on in the NBA. And Houston just looked dominant. Like They looked like, okay, these guys could beat... You know, they could beat the Lakers. They could make the finals out of the West. But then in game six, it was just like a completely different, I mean, not necessarily strategy, but the way they played. And like you said, going to Westbrook down the stretch, he's just getting rattled, throwing the ball out of bounds. Kind of, I thought one of the biggest improvements Westbrook made this year was like being aggressive to a point. Like he wasn't out of control as much this year. He was taking smarter shots. He wasn't as wild, in my opinion. And where when he was with uh, OKC, but I think he got back to that a little bit in Game Six, and maybe I mean he's, that was a second game coming off an of injury, but I don't know. I mean it didn't look it didn't look good. Hopefully we're in in store for a good Game Seven at least. I might be alone on this, but I still think that the Rockets can give the Lakers a good series where I don't think the Thunder could give as good of a series. If you were gonna tell me what the Lakers and Rockets odds were I would still put the Rockets at a 40% chance to win that series I think that the way they space the floor the way that Harden can get hot and PJ Tucker being just a general unit allows them an opportunity to beat these Lakers because we've talked about the Lakers struggles in the half court they can force into a half court game and make LeBron's usage rate go up and force Danny Green and KCP to hit shots Houston can do it so I'm cheering for the Rockets, but I might be alone on that. Uh, I, I'm, I'm with you on it. I mean, I think it'd be cool to see CP3 take down Houston as much as I think. As much as I'm not a personal fan of CP3, maybe it's some of the whole untucked jersey thing going back to the Timberwolves game in December. Hurt. but That one hurt. I'm just, I don't know. Sometimes I think uh, CP3 is focused on the wrong things, in my opinion. Like during the game, the refs for every single game in the Clippers uniform he had. Yeah, something like that. But yeah, overall, I still want to. I I mean, I think Houston will end up winning tonight, and then I mean that's gonna be a great second round matchup. But um, so finishing off quick with just one fan question to close it out. Uh, we got a question that asks, "What do the Mavericks need to make the next step next year?" What do you got on this one? 
Well, the nice thing for the Mavericks is that they actually have a ton of cap flexibility. So they're going to be getting Courtney Lee off the books. J.J. Barea's corpse is going to be getting off it. They do lose the Trey Burke contract, which for my money must have been the best contract <laughs> in the bubble. Making like $230,000 to be a stud for Dallas. But like most teams, kind of like we talked about with Giannis, is that what you want to do with young players is you want to surround them with stars. And Porzingis showed a lot in this series. He showed that he can be a bit of a rim protector. His footwork is still a bit slow. But if you're looking for a third piece to go along with Luka and Porzingis, it's obviously got to be somebody with a good shooting acumen. But I also think that you need a nice defensive presence. If you could switch out a Dorian Finney-Smith for a plus offensive player, and I'm not trying to be mad at Dorian Finney-Smith. He is who he is, and he's honestly overperformed what I thought he was going to be in the pros. And we might disagree on this, but I don't think you need an absolute superstar. And a player like Victor Oladipo comes to mind, somebody who's going to be on the market, somebody who has that defensive acumen, and he has that injury history, which makes his price a bit affordable. But if you paired Oladipo to be kind of your point guard defender, you have Seth Curry on the floor, you have Luka controlling everything, I think you could have a really strong team. They did have historically the, or statistically, the greatest offense of all time this year. Okay. That's the type of switch you need to make with your starting lineup. Can you find another plus offensive player for a guy and still keep that defensive efficiency high? That's the type of player you're looking for, Dallas. I don't think they need to go get a Kawhi. It'd be nice. I don't think they need to get a... I mean, maybe a Bradley Beal would be nice. I know that's probably another name that's going to come Giannis. to mind for you. Giannis. Giannis, some of those players. But the, the Mavericks are closer than people think. They really made the Clippers work from this series. So I really like the Mavericks going forward. And if they can really add another plus offensive piece while keeping the and keeping the defensive uh, stability going, I think they're going to be in a good position. I think I wish that Chris Stops and Luca they kind of each had, you know, there was the technical and game, that would have been game one, then Porzingis got hurt, Luca got injured mid-game there. I would have liked to see you know, Mavericks at full strength against that Clippers team. It would have just been a lot more interesting in my opinion. But uh, as far as what they need next year to take another step forward, I mean, I look at the wing. Like, Tim Hardaway Jr., solid player, fine. Dorian Finney-Smith, solid player, fine. But if I'm looking at two guys on the free agent market, Danilo Gallinari, plug him into the wing alongside those couple guys, Jay Crowder. Not big. I'm I'm a lot higher on Danilo Gallinari than a lot of of people. I think he is a very underrated player. But, again, when you look at those two guys, they're not superstars. They're not even stars. They're not all-stars. But... They do more, they give you more than Dorian Finney-Smith. In my opinion, Danilo Gallinari, when, say Porzingis goes down again, when he went down this series and Luka wasn't going, I mean, kind of going back to the Giannis thing, at that point, Luka needed another guy to help him take some of the load off himself. And that guy was, you know, Tim Hardaway Jr. or Trey Burke or Seth Curry or whoever. But in my opinion, a guy like Gallo could help with that. And then Jay Crowder, I just think, for defensive presence. I look at their historic offense. Jay Crowder can sit out there and still make some threes on the outside. He's not going to get in anyone's way on offense. And, I mean, his defensive regime speaks for itself. But uh, what do you think of those those couple names? Well, I, I just want to remind people, too, is that this wasn't even a full-strength Mavericks roster. They had guys who were making some serious cash who either opted out or are hurt. Dwight Powell has been a big part of that team for the whole series. He's making $10 million a year, and he didn't play a single second of these playoffs, and he's actually shown to play really well with Chris Stapps. 
Dwight Powell is a plus post defender, and he gives them a lot of presence on the inside. And Willie Cauley-Stein didn't play a second. They made a late-season acquisition for Willie Cauley-Stein, and then he opts out of the bubble. So Dallas is going to have plenty of length and big man rotation, so I 100% agree. They're, I think they're set in the front court. And just figuring out those backcourt and wing pieces for Luka is going to be really imperative going forward. And they are going to have close to $14 million clearing. And then in the next two years, they actually have half the roster that they can be able to turn over. So these next two years for the Mavericks, similar to how the Bucks have created their team, other franchises have really thrown away these opportunities. I'm really, really curious what the Mavericks will do in these next two seasons to put the right pieces around Luka because you have Dorian Finney-Smith locked up, Dwight Powell's locked up, Porzingis is locked up, Seth Curry is locked up. Everywhere else, you can make it work. So I'm very, very excited to see what they can do. Yeah, I am too. And I think just in general, the talent and like young up-and-coming talent in the NBA right now is just off the charts. Like, especially in the, I mean, even in the Western Conference, too, the West is so loaded and deep. I think every team next year, I mean, again, depending on what goes on in the offseason and whatever happens, I think every NBA team in the West could theoretically sit there and tell themselves, okay, we have a shot at making the playoffs this year. We can make a run. I mean, Sacramento may be stupid enough to tell themselves that. The Wolves. The Wolves, they also are probably stupid enough to tell themselves that. And I mean, hey, who knows, you know. We get a little LaMelo Ball action in Minnesota. Uh, Woo, don't even get me started on LaMelo Ball. That's another podcast. Triple Bs, baby. No. But, um, but yeah, just the up-and-coming talent in the NBA as a whole, I think the league is just in a really good spot. And, I mean, I think Dallas is definitely at the forefront of that. But, uh, anyway, thank you for joining us for Episode 3 of the Bubble Boys. We'll be back with another episode next week. Peace. Peace. <laughs>